So you understand that and you go and do the job with moral integrity and, and to the best of your ability. Um, but when you, do, when, you, when you are in that job, you see things that allow you to understand the perspectives, you know, because life is beautiful and, um, and we, it should not be taken for granted. And I think that's for, for most of us who are healthy in that viewpoint, um, we, come, we come away with even more of a, of a respect for that. Um, you know, I had, to, I've always, I've always had trouble. My kids love the, you know, love Nerf guns and stuff. I've, you know, I, I sometimes had trouble with them pointing guns at each other, even though they're fake guns, because of my perspective of what guns do, you know. And so now, again, this is this is me having to get over that a little bit and get back into normal life. You know, obviously, I don't, I don't stop them from doing that stuff. But this is where you have to really take a pause and understand. Um, how perspective does matter and um, and modify and adjust it based on where, where, where your environment is. Hey, this is Rich Devinney, author of The Attributes, and you're listening to the Traveling Optimist podcast with Steve Odie. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, the home of optimism, insight and uplifting stories. It's that time for another episode. So make a drink turn up the volume and settle down to a great conversation. It's awesome to have you join us. So when I got the message that today's guest would love to come on the show, I walked around all day with the biggest grin on the planet. Uh, it would have been an understatement to think that I was excited, but then the realisation dawned on me. This is a guy who is mixing in the rarefied air of the most influential people in the world. Uh, I need to make sure that I am on top of my game. But this is the incredible thing about podcasts, and it's what is associating yourself with great people does. It raises your game. And my guest today former Navy SEAL commander Rich Devinney certainly made me raise mine. So why do some Navy SEAL recruits have all the right skills but still fail, whilst the recruits who might initially have been dismissed due to not having the right skills succeed, thrive and become a top performer? What happens to you when things don't go according to plan? What part of you drives you to swim rather than sink? Well, in a career spanning more than 20 years, Rich completed more than 13 overseas deployments, 11 of which were to Iraq and Afghanistan. Being the officer in charge of training led Rich to be able to identify a successful recruit's core attributes, and these are the innate traits for how a person performs as an individual or within a team. It's this knowledge and experience that led Rich to write his first book, the Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers for Optimal Performance. If you go to the Attributes website, you can take a test and see what attributes guide you. And I'd highly recommend you buy his book as well. I'll put all the details in the show notes. Rich is a true gentleman. It was a real honour to have him on my podcast. And I really hope that what we talk about in some way helps you identify what your attributes are and enable you to take your life to the next level. So this is me and Navy SEAL Commander Rich Devinney talking about life as a Navy SEAL. It's about having the right mindset. It's about optimal, not peak performance. And the power of humour and laughter. And to never, ever doubt yourself. But ultimately, this is all about one man's desire to be the best he can be in all areas of his life. His need to keep challenging himself. And to lead a life of discovery. All right, let's go.
I'm so excited about you being on the show. I was thinking about it last night. It was like I was transported 40 years back in time. It was like Christmas Eve. I'm thinking <laughs> I've got <laughs> I'm speaking to Rich Davini and I was, I was so excited about it. So I can't say how grateful I am for you coming on the show. I can proudly say now that you're a, a member of the Optimist tribe. Not Excellent. that you, you <laughs> and then I read that you were um, uh, linked with Simon Sinek, and he's the yes. uh, he's another uh, ultimate optimist as well, isn't he? He is, yeah. In fact, in fact, uh, the the term they use for us are as optimists. They, they you know, on his team, you're called an optimist, which I love because that's that's kind of who I am anyway. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So, what's uh, what's the Rich Davini sort of backstory? You know, before you became a leader in the, the Navy SEALs. Well, I, you know, I grew up in New England and Connecticut and, uh, you know, my dad, you know, two, uh, three brothers, one sister, my dad, uh, was, he, he was a private pilot. So he used to go flying a lot. We used to go flying with him. So my brother and my, my twin brother and I, uh, loved flying so much. And we decided, well, we want to be in the military and specifically the Navy, because we knew the Navy pilots got to land their jets on ships. And we figured what, what's harder than that. That'd be cool. Uh, and so we grew up that way, uh, wanted to be Navy pilots, ended up in college and in, in, at Purdue University in a Navy RTC program. But I had a few years earlier discovered Navy SEALs. I didn't know what they were. And I discovered, man, these these guys out there who do all these things in all these different environments and they come from the water. The water is kind of their home. Uh, and I love that. And I, I knew it was very, very difficult. And I never wanted to be a pilot and look at a bunch of Navy SEALs and wonder if I could do that. So uh, as I came out of Navy RTC, I applied for the, the Navy SEAL program, got selected to go to SEAL training. And then, of course, then you have to go to SEAL training and make it through. Yeah. Uh, but I made it through, you know. So uh, and then th- that started, that was back in 1996. So that started a 20 plus year career through a very kinetic time period, um, obviously, uh, of, of being a SEAL. And, um, and a lot of the ideas uh, that I write about in the book really the impetus was during that that time as a Navy SEAL. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like you were almost predestined to go into the Navy then. It, so it's the, your... we, certainly, we were certainly thinking about that since, I mean, from time we were six or seven years, seven years old or so. I mean, our walls were peppered with with posters of Navy Navy aircraft and jets and things like that. I mean, we had, we had, we wanted to be jet pilots. So the, the air force was always an option, but the yeah. difference we found between the air, there, so there were two, two major differences. One I've already described the Navy pilots landed on ships, but the other major difference was uh, Navy bases are always someplace on a coast. And, you know, growing up on a coast on a near an ocean, my brother and I always wanted to be somewhere on a, on the ocean, some, you know, not in the middle yeah. of nowhere. Right. So, <laughs> so the Navy bases, you can always go somewhere nice. So <laughs> it was kind of the Navy from. Oh, that's so cool. So yeah. it almost actually you had like a very, you didn't know it. You had a vision board in your bedroom, didn't you? I did. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny, I didn't know it. Uh, however, I learned about vision boards later. Um, but yeah, I had the vision board and well, it's ironically, you know, it's funny because my vision board had no seals on the wall, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it certainly was, it certainly put pointed me in a direction. Um, and, and, and funny, we, my brother and I also had, you know, our notebooks that we took to school and in our notebooks that, that those were peppered with plain with uh, pictures of, of jets and things like that too. So we had vision boards everywhere, I would suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, I spent a few summers in Texas uh, when I was in my teenage years. We had um, some friends out there and um, the, my uncle was a, a former United States Air Force pilot. Mm-hmm. So he flew in, in Korea and Vietnam. And we used to go to Bergstrom Air Base uh, quite a bit and uh, see the air show and everything. And 
um, I remember they had a recruitment table at the air show <laughs> and my uncle was, he was like fixated on me joining the United States Air Force. And I said, I don't know how, or how is, how is that going to work? <laughs> but I remember I kept this, this um, document pack and it was called Aim High. And yes. it had this um, F-15 or something on, on the plane and stuff and mm-hmm. some, some fantastic literature and, and stuff. And I, I, obviously, I clearly, I never, I never, <laughs> I never right. went. Right. Yeah. But no, so, so when you left school you did you did the cadet thing which is what they have here is, is it sort of like a army cadets and, and that kind it of is free that it is in the states so and again it, you only do that if you're going to become an officer so you go to you go to college you get a degree you become an officer in the military um yeah. and there's three pathways really in the united states you can either go to one of the military service academies so they have the naval academy annapolis yeah. air force academy out in colorado uh west point which is the army academy uh academy that's one way and that's four years of complete you know complete indoctrination uh then there is rotc where you go to a college somewhere but then you're part of an uh, a, a cadet program and that just carries with it some responsibilities that you are part of the unit you wear your uniform once in a while and you do some stuff um, or you finish college altogether and then you go to you, you want to do it and you go to what's called officer candidate school and that's when they just send you to a six or eight week kind of boot camp type style mm-hmm. school and then you get commissioned as an officer after that so so i picked the rdc route um and it was good because they paid for my i got a scholarship so they paid for uh most of my college which yeah. was which was also nice brilliant so would you say that your dad was your well your dad and your mom obviously but your dad had a very positive influence on your sort of pre going to into the military but yeah, both parents did, but it, but not 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 in the way most people might seem. My my, we no one in our family had ever actually served in the military, so the military thing was new. Uh, my dad was a lawyer, um, and my mom, you know, was home with us. She was also a, a pianist, which was cool. Um, but uh, but it was really their approach to our development, which was they never forced us down any roads or any pathways. They really just said. They opened things up and they said, "Hey, do what you want to do, and we're not gonna we're not gonna force you one way or another." Um, mm-hmm. And that was really really powerful and something I try to repeat with my children, and I know my brothers and sisters do with theirs, yeah. um, because they allowed they allowed us to kind of make those decisions. And um, and I think they were both uh, probably kind of worried when my when, so my twin brother ended up going into the United States Marine Corps and flying the the Harrier, which is a is you, you probably know. I mean, that's the the, the jet that takes off and lands vertically yeah. um, for, for 20 plus years. So both of us got into the military and both of us kind of went through the war years. Mm-hmm. And I know both of them, both, both of my parents were worried <laughs> that whole time yeah. uh, because they expressed, they expressed relief once we both retired. So, <laughs> so, but again, the, the influence was really more um, just being so open and so positive yeah. and optimistic about just let them choose the pathway they want to choose. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's really powerful. Did you have another option in terms of career then before you decided to go through down the route that you chose? I don't think I, I'll be honest with you. I, I just don't think I ever um, thought of another option. I mean, yeah. I remember prior to discovering Navy pilots, I thought about being a marine biologist and that was only because that meant I could be underwater. And I loved, I loved the ocean. I loved the water, which is one of the reasons why the SEAL thing resonated with me, I think. Yeah. I love the idea of being underwater and, and, and that stuff. But as soon as I got wind of flying jets off of ships, I was like, I was sold. I didn't, didn't consider anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. So with the Navy SEALs, you, you're, you did the, your, your college course and went into, um, into the Navy, but the, it's not a, it, was it a sort of a natural progression to go to apply for that particular field? 
Well, as a, you're coming through that process, you, you, as an officer, you apply for the fields that you'd like to be selected for. So, and you get like three choices. So I remember applying for SEALs. I applied for an explosive ordnance disposal, which is kind of like SEAL. I felt like they were kind of near that. And then of course being a, you know, a pilot and, um, and then they, they choose the Navy chooses based on the, the number of, of billets they have available. And I was fortunate to get a billet. So they said, okay, you're, you, the Navy basically said, yeah, yeah, we select you. You get to go to SEAL training. So report at, uh, that, you know, the Coronado SEAL base on this date and, uh, commence seal training and coronado that is that's on the west coast of the states is it west coast southern california san diego basically it's a part of san diego um right. and that's where the seal training happens and has happened for i mean since the inception of seals they've had the seal base down at coronado they used to do some training on the east coast as well but uh but it's always been you know down there in southern california yeah uh, was there a like a, sort of a connection then from from inception was it sort of world war ii based the predecessor to the navy seals were the underwater demolition teams and they were basically formed uh in, because there was a need in world war ii they the, the the allies knew that they needed to do a massive amphibious invasion um and based on lessons they had learned in gallipoli uh, in world war one they knew that they needed to be able to recon the uh, the beaches and the landing lanes for mines and explosives and things like that, because Gallipoli was a was a disaster, yeah. and um, and so they said we we need to put together these teams of small these small teams of guys who can swim ashore, they can dive down, find obstacles, blow up the obstacles, and blow a pathway uh, for the for the allies. So UDT underwater demolition teams eventually began to also reconnoiter in time inside the hinterland, so they go across the beach and start doing stuff in there. Uh, those eventually morphed. Uh, it was really Vietnam where um, John F. Kennedy said, hey, I want to create a kind of a codified Navy commando force. And so they took some UDT folks and ch- and turned them into the SEAL teams. Um, and so for a while there, you had UDT teams and SEAL teams. And then it was, I think, late 70s, early 80s, all the UDT turned into Navy SEALs. And so that's what we have now. It's, it's great to get a little sort of backstory in, in history because then what we're going to talk about next is then sort of fits quite nicely. So what's training really like for Navy SEALs? Because, you know, I've seen, I think everybody's probably seen the images of the guys interlocked arms in the sea, you know, massive test of uh, surf torture. That's what that's called. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously that's not all of it, but you know, what's the training really like? Well, this is where it gets very interesting because I don't think it's 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 much less training than it is assessment and selection because they're not really training you in the in at least in basic seal training uh they're not really training you to be a navy seal at all they're they're running you through these very very challenging situations where they're taking you down to to zero and saying can you still survive can you still perform can you still do the job um which was kind of the inception of the whole process back in the UDT days and so um, and so I always say, you know, you in SEAL training, you run, you spend hours upon hours running around with boats on your head. You you exercise with three hundred pound telephone poles on your shoulder and things, like, and run around with those. You spend hours freezing in the surf zone, and it's called surf torture for a reason. Um, however, I, you know, in my career, I did hundreds of combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. I did thousands upon uh, thousands of training evolutions. And never on one of those did I carry a boat on my head or a telephone <laughs> pole on my shoulder, right? So, so what what the point is is that they weren't training us to be Navy SEALs, right? They were they were they were actually putting us in situations and environments that teased out these innate, inherent qualities 
that we all have to see if we had the ones that were required to do the job because the job by its very nature is uncertain, unknown, and it's tough. And that's mm-hmm. what they want to find out about, about the candidates. Yeah. I mean, so you, you had, I think I read 11 deployment deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, yeah, combined. Yeah. So what, what was that really like? Well, uh, uh, t- almost difficult to describe. I mean, you, 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 you approach those things in, in, in with very much of a of a business mind frame in terms of hey we're here to do a job uh, and you develop the qualities and the attributes and the skills of course to be able to do the job and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know war you know you never know you know you, you, I joined the Navy in 1996 right I became a SEAL in 1996 and so I was a SEAL for five years before 9/11 happened so you're not you always expect I mean you join because you're saying hey if something happens I'm I'm ready but the war started after I was already a seal and so uh so you just do the job and i think um i think it's you know war is horrible it's it's horrible for everybody and i think it's something you know it's something that has to be very carefully considered by any uh nation considering going because it's bad for those going to fight it and it's bad for the civilians on the other end it's bad for it's hard for the families who are allowing their family members to go fight so yeah um so yeah, I mean, but overall, I think you try to go there and you have a sense of purpose and you try to make sure that you are conducting yourself and your teams conducting themselves uh, in a way that's congruent with the overall mission mm. uh, and you do your best. People that haven't been there will never know what it's really like. So, you know, getting over to Iraq and um, and doing what you guys did um, was uh, was an incredible, incredible act. So yeah, thank you for that. Um in terms of leadership, when did you kind of get selected for the leadership roles within the Navy SEALs? Because that's an interesting thing for me. I'm thinking from a, a point of view of, you know, have you always known you're a leader? You're born with it? You learn it? How does that work? I, so my, my theory on that, right or wrong, is that you it's a little bit of both, I think. And the, and the reason why it's a little bit of both is because leadership, uh, again, I, I often say leadership is is not a behavior. It's not a position, it's behavior. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you don't get to call yourself a leader. All right. O- only other people can call you, call you a leader. So it's like calling yourself funny or handsome. You don't get to do that. Okay. Other people say whether or not you're a leader. <clears throat> and the reason why they do is because you behave in a way that allows them to say, I want to follow this person. So, so there's a distinct difference between being in charge and yeah. being a leader. Mm-hmm. We, anybody can be in charge. In fact, as an officer in the military, I was always in charge of something. Okay. Um, whether or not people looked at me and saw me as a leader was based on my behavior. So I think when you're coming up in a military environment, you're certainly, you're certainly, uh, kind of green behind the ears in terms of, uh, your ability to, to, be in charge effectively, but you learn. And I think, um, and I think if you are, if you have social aptitude, you are able to read and feel and kind of gain a, uh, a recognition as to whether or not your behavior is ultimately allowing folks to see you as a leader. And I think that's what I learned over time. Yeah. And, um, and in some cases it felt very successful. And in other cases I, I can recall times where I was like, actually I wasn't, it wasn't successful. I was not behaving uh, like a leader. And, and I can be certain there are people who I was in charge of who felt like, yeah, that guy was just in charge of me. <laughs> he yeah, was never a yeah. leader, right? But that's, it, that's human. Yeah, absolutely. And you're never going to, I, well, I, I say this, you're never, but there's always going to be a couple of people that don't have the same view as the, as the rest of the team, if that's you like. Exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and it's their prerogative. It's up to them. It's not up to me. Um, and so I, so I always say, beware the person who 
says, I am your leader. If they walk up and say, I am your leader, be very careful because that person's, you know, yeah. um, doesn't understand that the concept of it, mm. um, leadership must be earned and then delegated or, or designated, um, uh, by the person who says, I choose to follow you. Yeah. So. Yeah. And there was a, there was a, a story about the, uh, on your sort of last day of, of assessment and yeah. where you were, your officer in charge was asking everybody to go up the hill or something. Could you just sort of describe that scenario for us? Yeah. So, so at, towards the end of SEAL training, you're out at this island off the coast of San Diego where you're doing demolition and shooting and things like that. And they have, and you ha- they're, they're making you exercise in insane ways. And one of the things that was there at the, at the island was this huge hill. And, and typically you'd run up this hill for exercise. They'd time you and you'd have to go up and down. And it was a, a good three, three, 400 yard or, you know, 450, 450 meter run up this hill uh and then you tap this monument and come back well they also use that hill for for punishments and the punishments were called flights and and that when you had to do a a flight that what that meant is you stood at the base of that hill and instead of just running up in your camouflage uniform um you had to have your your gear on which was like 30 pounds of ammunition and then you they made you carry a a a moving a, a metal moving pallet on your on your back which are about 70 or 80 pounds so now you're running up this hill with about a hundred and plus pounds of of gear, right? So you're not really running anymore; you're trudging. That was a, that's called a flight, and you'd have to run up this thing and then tap the monument and come back down. And I remember it was uh, about the day; it was the day before we were supposed to leave, uh, and the instructor at the time yelled at us and said, "Hey, everybody!" And we were so the day before we're leaving, we're all excited. There's only 38 of us left out of 160 plus people who started, right? So we're ecstatic. We're, we're because we're going to go back, we're going to fly back, we're going to graduate SEAL training, right? It's over. We, this instructor you know, yells and says, hey, everybody muster on the flight line. And so we're kind of like, oh, shoot, what's this? What's going on? And so we get out there and he says, hey, what's the fastest time someone has running up and down the hill? And I think someone said two minutes. Now, again, running up and down the hill is just slick. You don't have anything on you. Yeah. He says, okay, we're going to do flights until we're all going to do flights until someone beats that time. So Basically, he's telling us now we're going to throw on all the stuff and try to run as fast as we do. Now, I don't know what sound I made or, or noise I made or face I made at the moment, but that cued him into me. But he cued into me and said, hey, Ensign Divinity, do you have a problem with that? And I, at the point at the time, I stepped out of line. And I said, I said, yes, I have a problem with that. And he said, why do you have a problem with that? I said, because this is a stupid idea. Guys are going to get hurt trying to trying to run these flights like that. It's a dumb idea. We shouldn't be doing it. And now at that point, I, I, the words left my lips and I was like, oh my God, what, what did I just say? I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to spend, I'm going to be all, I'm going to be on this hill all day by myself. Right. And, and <laughs> it, my teammates, my classmates, you could tell they were kind of like, uh oh, what's, you know, they're kind of moving, stepping away from me because they didn't know what was coming down there. And at the point, the instructor said he, he was silent for a while and he said, okay, well, since, uh, since Ensign Divinity has a problem with this, what we're going to do instead is we're going to run back to the barracks. We're going to go to the auditorium. And we're going to watch movies for the rest of the afternoon. So we're all kind of like surprised until someone gets smart enough to start running because before he changes his mind. So we all start running back and then you get a bunch of high fives and things like that. But the point, the reason why I tell the story is not really that. The reason why I tell that story is because 17 years later, I run into a couple guys who were in my SEAL training class and I hadn't seen them in that time because, you know, we have two different coasts, you know, East Coast, West Coast. I just, we hadn't run into each other. So we were reminiscing. It was great to see them. And I remember them saying, or one of them said, hey, hey, sir, do you remember that time that you stood up to the instructor on the flight line? Yeah. 
And, uh, and I, of course, I remembered, I just hadn't thought about it for a while. And uh, I said, sure. And he said, that, both of them at that point said, hey, sir, that was awesome. We would follow you anywhere, uh, anytime. We trust you any, anywhere, anytime. And it occurred to me, I said, what, what really causes that trust to endure, right? Um, and ultimately, the, the, the short end of a long story is that it, the, what causes that trust to endure are the behaviors that I, that I displayed. It wasn't, it wasn't because I was in a position where they needed to trust me and needed to follow me. It was because I stepped out of line. I, I put myself at risk mm. for the good of my classmates. Um, I stepped out of line. I I spoke up when something when I felt something was wrong, and that behavior translated and really you know endeared into into these guys' heads, right? Yeah. And and that's how powerful this type of behavior is. If you if you really are selfless and you're empathetic and you're and, and authentic with people, they will they will choose you as a leader, and and it it's enduring. It really yeah. is. It. it Time can pass and they will still choose you. And we can all think about this because all of us have people we trust dearly in our lives. And we trust these people because of all these behaviors. And it mm-hmm. doesn't matter how long time has passed, we still trust them. So that's really the point of, of that story. Yeah, trust is important. And also consistency of that behavior as well. And I would, I'm yeah. just thinking, you know, crikey, that must be a really difficult thing to actually be consistent with in terms of that behavior because the the sort of this sort of officer and conflict and superiority in terms of rank and everything that you must get in the military well it's true i would say i I would say though if we're so authenticity is one of the leadership attributes i talk about in the book Hmm. if we are authentic if we are our our authentic selves in other words we're the same people at work as we are at home as we are on the football field as we are you know you know at at church or whatever whatever we are we're the same person that is consistent, right? Mm. People see that. People see the consistency and they trust that consistency. So consistency is a very crucial element of trust and consistency starts with authenticity. That's mm. why it's so important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So all this time, you I don't know how long deployments were. Were they sort of six months or so? Some were six uh, months, some were three months, some were four mm. months. It really depended. So Yeah, how did you sort of, how did the relationships back home, how were they managed and stuff? Did kids and 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 mrs davini how, how yes. did you get around all of that with difficulty <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's tough i would say i i, I would say if 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 i were to if i were to, to describe the hardest part of the whole thing um it really wasn't the missions because you were prepared to do the missions it was it was certainly a loss when you'd lose someone of course but but uh but it was also just leaving leaving those you love for those mm-hmm. periods of time it is a tough thing to do and it's why that a lot. It's why military spouses are so strong, mm-hmm. um, and need, well, need to be so strong. Certainly, SEAL Navy SEAL wives are some of the strongest wives out there, and my my wife certainly included, tremendously strong uh, woman and um, and supportive. And so, so it was rough, but we we did it together. And um, and I always say, you know, I spent twenty years, and and I'm out now. And people say, do you miss it? I was like, no, I don't miss it. I I look back on it very fondly. I'm grateful to have done it, but I'm glad it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, no, 20 years is a long time. You know, it's a, it it's a reasonable, you know, amount of time for a career in the military, I would imagine. It's, um, yes. No, it's interesting to, because, yeah, managing that relationship and when you're away, you're coming back um, and then you've got, you know, an, uh, another sort of amount of time at home. It, there's the adjustment and things must be uh, quite tricky. So, yeah, it's a, yeah, I guess if you're, if you've got all the attributes that you, you in your book, I, I guess Mrs. Davini's got, Everyone's got these attributes, but you guys must complement each other on on different things. Then, 
We absolutely do. And, that, and that really what you're, what you're talking about is this is what high-performing teams are made up of, right? Mm -hmm. And high-performing teams, by the way, people think of SEAL teams, they think of athletic teams, they think of business teams. A team is just a group of one or more people uh, or two or more people working together towards a common goal or objective, which tells us that teams, a great marriage is a high-performing team. A great friendship is a high-performing team, right? And they are such because they complement each other, both in skill and attributes. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so the attributes that I might be a little bit shy on uh, my wife supplements because she's she's high on, and then vice versa. Yeah. Um, and so and so that really begins to set up a situation where you can really effectively lean on each other um, when you just don't have enough in your tank, you know. And that's 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 the essence of a great team. It's the essence of a great marriage. It's the essence of a great relationship. Yeah, yeah. So r really, when you're looking at those attributes from a, a military, being in the in the military in a Navy SEAL perspective. Do you, are you, what sort of things are you looking for in, in the guys then? Well, so the list of attributes for, so I will say this, all, so the attributes I talk about in the book are kind of ubiquitous. So they, so, and we all have all of them um, as, as human beings. The difference in each one of us is the levels to which we have one, right? So, so if we take adaptability, for example, if, if one is low adaptability and 10 is, is high adaptability, right? Um, on a, I might be a level eight on adaptability and someone else might be on a level four. Mm -hmm. Every human being is adaptable. It's yeah. just, it's just a, the, the, the degree to which it's easy to adapt, right? I can adapt pretty easily, right? So my, my adaptability is higher. So we all have all of them. So the, as such, we all have to figure out where we, where we sit on each one. There is zero judgment to that, right? That's it's like it would be like judging myself for having brown hair. I mean, it's silly, right? We are who we are. This is what we show up with. So there's zero judgment in attributes when it comes to the palette we show up with. Where we begin to place value on attributes is when we start talking about them in context of a team. Every team or business uh, or organization are, is going to have a list of attributes that's required to do that specific task, right? So the list of attributes required to do a that the job of a Navy SEAL or, or the Navy SEAL team is going to be different than the list of attributes required for a sales team yeah. or a group of nurses or an athletic team, right? So, so that's really when you begin to start um, being able to plug and play and uh, and understanding. Okay, do I have the attributes required for this specific team mm -hmm. in the context of what we're trying to do? But but in terms of reading the book as an individual, it's just about figuring out what's under the hood and where you where you show up, so you can understand why things sometimes seem easier and why things sometimes seem a little bit harder. Mm. So within the, within the navy, in within the team of of your of your guys, for example, uh, adaptability and and the uh, other uh, grit and, and yes, other yeah. other areas that you know you talk about um, in the book, mental acuity and everything. Are you looking for a, mi a mixture of of those things? Um, do you, do you need them to be middle of the road, or do you do you, are you looking for high adaptability because of you know certain you know if you're in situations which are highly pressured, you need to be able to be adaptable to that yeah. to the changing situations. What what sort of things are you looking at? Well, I would say I would say certainly when we look at the categories, the grit category, of course, you have courage, you have perseverance, you have adaptability, and you have resilience. I think I think Navy SEALs specifically need high levels of all four of those uh, mm. to be Navy SEALs. Um, if we hop over to the drive category, you know, you have self-efficacy, you have open-mindedness, you have discipline, and then, of course, cunning and narcissism. I think you have, you have to have elevated levels, certainly high levels of self-efficacy, high level, uh, elevated levels of, of discipline and, and some cunning, not too much narcissism, but it's in there, right? Mm. And so it really starts to depend. Uh, the mental acuity, it really depends on the role. I think certainly you need a level 
uh, probably probably medium levels of all the mental acuity attributes. Then depending on what you're doing, there are certain roles within the SEAL teams where you are going to need high levels of those. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, team ability. You need a lot of those and you need a lot of leadership. So so there's certainly, um, there's certainly probably a, a predominance of attributes that you need a little bit more of in that 25 to be a Navy SEAL. Um, but if you are a little bit low on some of them, you can certainly supplement with teammates, you know, because that's, that's actually what teams do. Yeah, absolutely. It, humor as well is another thing that sort of plays a, a big part, doesn't it? Is that something, you know, that you're pretty strong on in terms of having, making sure that, the, that there's in the, in a, a team of people, you've got some people with a good sense of humor or. Well, I this I was spoiled in the SEAL teams because because the SEAL teams uh, you you cannot go through SEAL training something as tough as that without having a sense of humor. So we always had guys who would crack jokes or do something, and all of us who made it through were able to laugh. And I tell a story about being in the surf zone during surf torture. What you talk about, you're kind of linked arms, you're laying in the surf zone, the wa- the waters, the oceans washing over you, and then receding, and then washing over you and receding. It's the coldest. It's one of the coldest things I've ever done. Anybody could ever do. And during that time frame, a lot of times the instructors will pull up a van on the beach and, and come out with a megaphone and say, Hey, anybody who wants to quit right now, we have hot chocolate, we have donuts and we have blankets for anybody who quits. And usually you get a lot of people quitting, but I remember them doing this to us in, in our own seal training. And I remember him saying that. And the guy next to me to my right says, he yells, he says, Hey, do you have any chocolate glazed donuts in there? Because if you don't have any chocolate glazed donuts, I'm not quitting. Okay. <laughs> and he said that and and he and I burst out laughing. We're in the we're in the surf zone freezing and he and I burst out laughing. And I knew in that moment that we'd we'd be okay. We'd make it through. I looked to my left though, and the guy to my left, he he didn't even hear the joke. He was just lost in his pain. And I remember saying to myself, that guy's not gonna make it. And sure enough, a couple of minutes later, he quit. And so so laughing, um, the the power of laughter, it's an involuntary response. And when it happens, we get we get hit with three uh, three chemicals. Uh, one is dopamine, and that's a very powerful chemical that says, hey, this feels good. Keep doing it. One is endorphin. Endorphins are the humans, uh, the human body's opiates that mask pain. Mm-hmm. And then oxytocin, which is a hormone which bonds us, it's kind of known as a love hormone, right? Those three chemicals get surged into your system, whether you like it or not, right? Mm-hmm. Which tells us, hey, this is a hack into being able to keep going. What happened to me in the surf zone and my buddy is that suddenly when he cracked that joke, we were, to, you know, dopamine flooded our system. Hey, okay, this is good. This is fine, right? Um, endorphins flooded our system. This doesn't feel that bad, all right? And then oxytocin, we're in this together, man. It's you and me, right? We're good, right? This is the power of laughter. And people, you know, they've done scientific studies on this. We know that cancer patients who who decide to laugh more do better. Um, laughing is a huge, huge benefit to life in general yeah. and can actually be a hack into making it through very tough, uh, tough situation so we all have to give a bow to all of our comedians out there um, because they give us a gift by doing what they're doing so absolutely actually that's quite interesting because i've i've been having some uh, conversations actually he was on a a a podcast a couple of weeks ago there's a guy called pete can and he's called the laughter man and he does um, laughter yoga oh wow and it's really powerful stuff really powerful stuff and and he was saying in, in in you know I, I love learning new things. He said the mm-hmm. brain doesn't actually know the difference between fake and real laughter. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, so y- these guys that quit, all they needed to do re- theoretically was just fake laugh all the way through it. That's yeah. It's fascinating. I'd love to, I'd love to read more about that. Cause it, it makes sense to me. I mean, again, because, because again, if you smile, they've done the same study with smiling. I think, you know, when yeah. you smile, 
it enga- even if you're fake smiling, it still yeah. engages muscles and systems in your face that actually start to start to make you. It's hard. They've done studies where they make people smile, and it's hard for people to even when forcing a smile not to start feeling good or funny or laughing and yeah. end up smiling automatically. So, so yeah, we can we can hack into that. Oh man, I love it. I love all that, especially yeah. now. You know, so things times are so difficult for people. You know, and uh, it's a very simple it's a very simple hack, as you said. Yes into yes. feeling good you know totally. really amazing yeah. really great stuff so uh, in terms of the attributes okay from the book that you've written which um you know is fantastic i just wondered whether you know where you sit in terms of education versus attributes and and i just wondered whether you, you've got a view on companies moving forward are they going to should they really be worried about a person's educational level uh, uh, over over attributes yeah it's a great question i think i think there's there's certainly um so the difference is, the, so the difference i described in the book is the difference between skills and attributes and skills are are these things that are not inherent that we we learn them we train them things like riding a bike driving a car um they direct our behavior they tell us what to do in 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 known situations therefore we can we can very easily assess measure and test them which is why most selection processes and most businesses when they're hiring look primarily at skills because Mm -hmm. you can see exactly what someone's sales numbers are someone can write it on a resume it's just easy you can see the stats right the stats are easy to read the problem is that those skills don't tell us how people operate when things go south and sideways and things get uncertain and dirty and and rough and that's where attributes come in because attributes are more elemental. In fact, they are elemental. You know, things like patience and adaptability and situational awareness, uh, we're born with levels of those. We can see mm. it in small kids. They inform our behavior rather than direct. So they they tell us how we're going to show up to a situation. And because they're hidden, they uh, they're hard to see. They're 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 the most visible actually when you, when we're in stress, stress and challenge, right? Yeah. Because in a known environment, or excuse me, in an unknown environment, um, it's hard to apply a known skill. Okay. So we're leaning on these attributes. So businesses really have to consider in their hiring processes um, b- what the difference is because they get conflated. Skills and attributes get conflated all the time. Which are the skills that they're looking for and which are their attributes? And I would imagine if they're in an environment in business where things are more dynamic and a little bit more uncertain or have a tendency to go those directions, I would recommend that they begin to prefer uh, and bias towards attributes versus just skills, which then tells us that maybe the education that the, 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 the guy with the business degree might not be the best candidate or might not be as good as the as the lady who just finished digging wells in Africa, right? Yeah. Because she's had this experience of dealing with people and, 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 and has, has developed attributes that are much more and could probably be more valuable and important than someone coming out of school. So, so I would say both are important, um, but it's really up to the businesses and the teams to understand the differences and the distinctions so that they may make the right choices. Yeah, that's it. It is about making the right choices, but also it's that person's got to make the right choices. But I was thinking about it from this could be a a, a real game changer, actually, because I think there's a kind of a a lost not generation, but there's a lot. There's a ton of people out there which are sort of they're holding themselves back because of their perception that businesses are, and, you know, owners uh, are looking at educational achievements. Yes. Yes. Rather than their inherent the in the qualities that are inside them that are, would make them suitable for that job. And I think this is where something like this is just going to open up so many new channels for people, I think. 
I hope it does because I think I think this is how we start to get around uh, biases and mm. um, and judgments because we start looking at at the reality of 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 things. There's nothing wrong. I mean, education is wonderful, and 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 should sh- should you be able to pursue it, pursue it. Um, but ultimately, you, you don't want to, you don't want as a business just to be hiring someone because they have a piece of paper that says that they come from a certain school. Because yeah. the joke, and you've probably heard it too. I mean, the, the you know what the the you know what the last or the the bottom graduate of medical school is called doctor. Okay, they're all called doctor because yeah. they uh, even though he's at the bottom of the class, right? Yeah, uh, he's still called a doctor, right? So you don't know. It only tells us education will only tell us so much. Certainly, mm-hmm. someone has been through the wickets of understanding the material. But can they actually operate in environments? And that's when attributes start to come to the fore. Yeah, absolutely. Do you also think that these attributes have helped you deal with the mental health side of military service and during during your career and, and, and afterwards? Is it something that you've you've lent on particularly? I think, yeah, I think helped and hurt. You know, so we, you talk about compartmentalization. Compartmentalization is a required skill for a Navy SEAL or anybody in the military, because you need to be able to, to focus on something that needs to, that you need to be able to focus on what you need to focus on to get the mission accomplished mm. and block out everything else. And some of the, sometimes that everything else is pretty bad stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, however, someone who is so hyper good at compartmentalizing, that doesn't do well in a marriage, for example, right? So, mm. because you can't block out stuff, you have to be able to process stuff. And if you block out stuff too much and you don't allow yourself, yourself to to let some of that bad stuff in and appropriately born it, then we all know how that turns out as well. So, so I think there's, again, there's going to be a balance and I, you know, I hesitate, I'm not a psychologist. So I think, I think it'd be interesting uh, for psychologists to, to maybe start to deconstruct what are some of those optimal levels of each attribute to help in that kind of mental health uh, yeah. game, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But you lent on, on your findings. Certainly. Your yeah, certainly. Yeah. Probably unconsciously more than consciously, but mm. yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I was thinking about that as well. I, I did quite a lot of thinking prior to, you know, our conversation and, you know, having listened to a lot of your uh, talks and, and, and podcasts, I was thinking, you know, trying to make it a, a, a little bit different and ask some different questions for you because, you know, when you're on the on a circuit like this. But I just I, I've got several friends in the armed forces and it's kind of always struck me that they're very tuned into what we would what we would say are the seemingly sort of smaller things of life, you mm-hmm. know just hearing out for birdsong or uh, seeing a, a buzzard in the, in the sky or something, something that, you know, when you're in life, you don't notice it right. uh, as much. And I imagine that you've probably, you know, experienced some highly stressful situations. Um, and I just wondered, have I sort of described you in, in a way or, um, and, and the other thing I was going to sort of say is that I, they've also got a very healthy perspective on life as well. And yeah. I just wondered whether that kind of, you fit that, that sort of description. I, I think so. And there, I'll break that into two pieces. First, the, the, the kind of the what I call situational awareness, which is another attribute in the mental acuity uh, category. Um, I am highly situationally aware. And, it, and really, situational awareness comes down to what are you able to take in? It's kind of vigilance to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I'm, I'm highly vigilant. And now I was vigilant as a kid, but I also hyper developed that vigilance as a Navy SEAL. Now, even that, though, to a to too much of a degree can be detrimental right there's no reason when you come home from the war zone to have to worry about all the people around you on the street like you do in a war zone right so so hyper vigilance can lead to overstressing one system and getting a little bit paranoid right mm-hmm. so you have to be careful about that um so that's uh that's the the first part um the second part i think is um 
any any putty in the military who who is healthy. Okay, and and again, the selection process in the military is pretty darn good. I think regardless if it's U.S., uh, British, or 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 whatever, you know, name the name the country that has a really strong military. So for the most part, many most people who join the forces are healthy mentally. Okay, mm-hmm. if you are such, then you recognize that the the um, permission, the, the 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 job, and therefore the permission of taking life is is something that has to be considered very very carefully and really respected very deeply um so you understand that and you go and do the job with moral integrity and and to the best of your ability um but when you do when you when you are in that job you see things that allow you to understand the perspectives you know because life is beautiful and um and we it should not be taken for granted and i think that's for for most of us who are healthy in that viewpoint um, we come up, we come away with even more of a, of a respect for that. Um, you know, I had, to, I've always, I've always had trouble. My kids love the, you know, love Nerf guns and stuff. I've, you know, I, I sometimes had trouble with them pointing guns at each other, even though there are fake guns because of my perspective of what guns do, you know? And so now again, this is, this is me having to get over that a little bit and get back into normal life. You know, obviously I don't, I don't stop them from doing that stuff, but this is where you have to really take a pause and understand um, how perspective does matter, and um, and modify it and adjust it based on where where, where your environment is. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's the uh, a level of appreciation, really, yes, of, yes. Of, of what you have, and and um, coming coming from those different environments, getting home and just being grateful for what what you've got in yes, terms of home yeah. life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When did you start to think about retirement from the navy? You know, I never thought about retirement. I just said, I'm going to get, kind of do this. Th- I'm going to do this for as long as it makes sense and as long as it feels pretty good. Um, in the in the U.S. military, I, I, I imagine, I think it's the same in the in the U.K., but um, but in the U.S. military, if you if you complete 20 years, you get a retirement, right? So that you can officially retire from the military. If you don't complete 20 years, then you you just leave the military. You don't get a lot of the benefits. So, mm. so there's a certain point where you like reach the year 15. You're like, okay, well, I only have five years left, so I might as well, I might as well make it till 20, right? So... <laughs> Um, but I'll be honest with you, the jobs were always were always interesting for me, and my family was always supportive. And so, twenty years kind of came up pretty quickly. Now, I had never really considered uh, going beyond twenty as much, right? I always said to myself, once I do twenty, I'm really going to want to make a decision because I may want to just shift gears and try something new. Um, yeah. And that was certainly the case. So I was ready to get out um, when I did, and uh, and it felt like the right time. Uh, and how was how was Mrs. Davini about uh, the conversation when you said I'm I'm going to be leaving? And you know. uh, I, I, if I were to say ec- ecstatic, I, that would be understating that she was, <laughs> was beyond excited because because again she you know it, it's tough on her. In fact, in many cases, more tough on her because she's raising two kids. I'm I'm going off to these places, and there's there's risk involved in that, and so and so to be able to shift gears, and and of course we trust each other. We're you know we've been married for twenty plus years now, so so um, she's okay with me taking some risks in the civilian side too, uh, yeah. just because now we can try new things. But I'm home more, and my boys are now teenagers, so it's almost the perfect time for me to be home yeah. because now dad's here. So so yeah, we were we were very excited. How old are the boys? They are thirteen and fifteen. So. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Did you have any doubts as, you know, coming up to retirement, 20 years is almost done and you're thinking, you know, what was the, what was the plan? What did you, did you have a, a master plan, a Divini master plan to say, right, this is what's going to happen when I go back into civilian life? 
Yeah, I had no plan, but I had no doubts um, okay. because I'm an op- I'm an op- I'm an optimist, and I knew that um, I knew that uh, I'd figure something out. Um, and and I think one of the benefits of doing a career in something like the SEAL teams, for example, is you become very very comfortable with uncertainty. Yeah, um, you you become really good at navigating an environment that has a lot of unknowns, and you're just mm. like, okay, I'll just we'll just figure it out. So. So yeah, I just stayed open-minded um, and, and, you know, I'd, I'd always been, I loved writing. So I'd always had all these ideas brimming in my head in terms of books. Um, and so I, I knew eventually I'd probably write a book. I just didn't know when and where or what about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. did you, so back into the Navy, just for a brief, brief second, because yeah. you, you um, helped change the assessment methods, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And so how did that come about? Well, so so I was running. I wasn't running basic SEAL training. I was running a, a, a assessment and selection for one of our very specialized commands. And um, and really, I didn't. What I you know the, this was actually the, the issue. We didn't really want to change the the program. What we wanted to do because the program was really really solid and it was a program that worked and and got us the great candidates. What we wanted to change was our was the the way we articulated the program and the way specifically we could tell both uh, our leadership ourselves and the candidates why they were succeeding or why they were failing because if someone came to our training and failed out um, they would feel pretty bad about themselves you know mm-hmm. and um, and we, we need we needed to do something better than just say I'm sorry you just didn't cut it right this is where I began to explore this this, this attribute stuff because it really came down to hey this command uh, and this pro- program is looking for a specific set of attributes. And what we're seeing in you is that you have a couple here, but you just don't have enough of this and this. It's a much more palatable way to describe to someone why they're getting deselected than, oh, you're not good enough, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's really the the biggest thing that changed was our ability to usher people in and out in a much more positive and optimistic way. Okay. So you, in terms of the changes within that selection uh, or the the way that the, the things that you just described you, you was there a difference in the performance that you saw from people did that did it affect anything you well know? interestingly uh, interestingly no um because we had already been doing that we just weren't talking about it the right way um yeah. and so we were still getting great people uh and we were getting the right people um but i will say this they've started to do this at the basic seal training and they've started to do this in other basic training uh parts of the military and it has changed the the uh, some of the people who are coming through because they're able to spot people who don't may, may, might not have the right attributes to begin with and right. select them early or spot some of the dark horses who may um may not they, they may not have some of the uh, very visible skills but we're going like hey we can but have all the attributes it's like yeah. we can we can always train the skills they have the attributes we're looking for so in oh. those cases I think it is tra- it is working yeah that's awesome so with the uh, with the retirement and um you came back into civilian life you you said you didn't have any doubts is that sort of a a, a built-in th- feeling that you you've always had in terms of th- i know that things are you know instinctive not not instinctively but in your gut you know that things are just going to work out uh so i think it's a difference between saying i, th- I know that things are going to work out versus i know i'll find a way okay and there's a big difference there there's a there's optimism with realism you know and so um, and so I think doubting is a waste of time and it's a waste of energy. Uh, I like to say, Hey, listen, if it doesn't go the way I think it's going to go, I'll figure out another way. <laughs> I'll work it out. And that's really more empowering because it puts the, it puts the onus and the accountability on me to be proactive in the way I achieve or, or strive for certain outcomes. 
um, and be flexible in the way in the in the in the pathway to do it. Um, yeah. So I always say be be resolute in the outcome that you want, but be flexible in the pathway that you get there. Right? Because to dictate the pathway is probably a mistake because it's yeah. never ever going to go the, th- the exactly the way you think it's going to go. So you have yeah. to be flexible. Oh, I love that. I love that. So how was the? How did you sort of manage the transition from military life into civilian life? Uh, overall, very well. I mean, I got, again, uh, you know, I had my family with me. I, I, I began to f- to meet uh, different people on the outside of the military who were very supportive. Uh, you always you, you you miss the comfort uh, level of of what you did before, but this is all about you know kind of stepping outside your comfort zone. And I was always someone who I am someone who continues to try to figure out what those edges are and step out towards them. Yeah. Um, and so that was just it was just another step into a different environment. So. It was so it was, it was certainly uncomfortable at times and certainly um, risky at times. But I was always excited because you know you can't find the new horizon unless you, you unless you walk out to the to the edge that you see, right? So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You've, I mean, you've been um, actually you've been very busy over the last three years, haven't you? Because I know I, I I know that you've been sort of in front of over five thousand people talking about attributes and and leaders, you know, in the in their field and athletes and Actually, that's a question I was going to ask really about the attributes and how how have they helped athletes improve their performance? Um, you know, and how's the reaction from from the from the crowd? Yeah, so far so good. Um, I, you know, I've this is the first time I'm talking as in depth about the attributes as I you know in in these last three or four years because you really get in writing a book, you really the process of writing uh, allows you to gain a fidelity that you didn't previously have. That's what I loved. That's one of the things I loved about writing the book is I was able to really dive in and say, Oh, I actually haven't thought about this mm. in the depth that uh, I've wanted to. And so that's helped. Um, and so, so, so the businesses I've worked with mostly centered around leadership and culture and things like that. But the ones I've talked to about attributes have really resonated well. Um, and really, you know, when we talk about different, I mean, the, the attributes for a business can be different than the attributes for athletics. And in some cases I would offer that, like, for example, athletics uh, skills actually are, I would say in athletics skills are probably more important than attributes. Whereas in a, in a business that has a dynamic environment, attributes are more important than skills. Because athletics, you need to know how to throw a ball and, <laughs> and shoot yeah. a goal and things like that. So skills matter. Um, attributes do matter, but maybe not as much. Um, uh, and so that's really, I think I love uh, providing um, descriptions and articulation around human behavior in a way that, that people can understand and people can absorb and people can then use themselves. And that's been the, that's been the most thrilling for me so far. Yeah, absolutely. No. And I, I think that the, um, the language that you use in the attributes is, is really, is really great actually just for a, a normal guy like me looking at things like, you know, learnability and open-mindedness. And these are, those are all words that everybody would understand, yeah. you know, and, yeah. um, and appreciate, and and can actually, I guess the thing is, learn how to improve them as well. Totally. Yeah, mm. totally. Learn, learn, learn what they have. And then the ones that they want to improve or desire to improve, they can, they can work on actively. Yeah, absolutely. Have you yeah. done some public speaking as well? Oh, yeah. Lots of public speaking. Of course, once the pandemic hit, uh, it kind of went, uh, went quiet for a while i, I yeah. we're, i'm back into it now a lot of it's virtual uh, okay. uh but i think i think we're going to start seeing some of the live events come back here slowly which will be yeah. nice we'll get back to normal yeah absolutely was that something that you had to get out of your comfort zone to uh 100 100 but that was a deliberate choice by me i said i said to myself hey i want to walk out to this edge and and do this and, and exercise this this thing that i don't really like very much and i'm not yeah. i don't i'm not happy about but uh, and in doing so i did that and um and i got 
I got pretty decent at it. I don't know if I would say I love it, <laughs> but I certainly, I certainly don't mind it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. from an outsider's point of view, I, I've seen a few of you, you know, the, uh, on YouTube, uh, I've seen a few of your, um, talks and stuff and uh, they're brilliant i think you come across oh really, i appreciate really that fantastic thank you. yeah brilliant. thank you i mean it's um something that i really believe in is is something it's the law of attraction i just mm-hmm. it was one of those universal laws that uh, i came across 20 years ago and and i i really bought into it and i just wondered um is it something that you've come across is it something that you've used? One hundred percent. I'm I'm a big believer in it, um, and I think you know I don't. I, again, I don't know about the you know the metaphysics of it all. Um, I'm I'm I know that when when you set an intent and you write something down and you focus on an outcome, I know that you. I have experienced that I tend to I tend to accomplish these goals, and it seems like things are coming into my scope of visions that I, uh, that I like, Oh, how'd that happen? You know, it seems like that. Now I would say this neurologically, I would imagine that, you know, and I've, I've, I've talked about this with some, a couple of neuroscientists that, you know, we, whenever we lodge something deliberately into our frontal lobe, into our conscious mind, what we're doing is we're making a decision and we're telling our frontal lobe to product process out of the, out of the millions of bits of information that are coming in, our frontal lobe only processes about 2,500 or 3000. And what we're doing is we're saying to our frontal lobe, Hey, anything that relates to this that I'm putting in there, notice, okay? Same thing happens when we buy a car. You know, we start noticing that car everywhere. Well, that's because we just lodged it in our brain. That car has always been there, right? We just haven't noticed it. So mm-hmm. so I think part of the law of attraction, at least neurologically, can be explained by this phenomenon where we say, hey, I'm just now deciding to focus. And then suddenly, I'm going to, I'm my brain is going to start noticing the person who happens to be talking about the person I can meet. And the, we're just... And it seems like it's kind of um, uh, out of the blue or 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 serendipitous, but uh, but it, it, we're just noticing things that were always kind of in our scope, and we just we just discarded unconsciously. So I think that's part of the the way that this could be explained. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Did you did you sort of come across it during your military career as well, or is it something that is just very new? No, well, no, I I discovered it. My my mom gave me a book when I was in a teenager um, uh, that kind of talked about the law of attraction. So I was really into it then. I said, "Ooh, this is cool!" And I started studying or kind of reading up on this the power of the subconscious mind and all this stuff, and um, and really just began to just write things down and think positively and 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 be kind of resolute in my outcome. And, uh, and it started working for me and it worked for me, you know, it's continued to work for me because I'd always in, when in doubt, I'd say, listen, I'm just going to focus on where I'm going to focus on the outcome. And I know that whatever comes my way, I'll adjust, I'll, I'll make it happen. Yeah. And I think, um, that sort of ties in quite nicely, particularly sort of now because the pandemic has thrown up a lot of uh, challenges and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, interesting times. And I just, you know, people, I, I guess are experiencing huge amounts of, um, stress and anxiety and in their lives and stuff. And I just wondered how, how have you adapted during these sort of uncertain times? Yeah. Uh, so probably leaning on my attributes that I already know, I think certainly, certainly I've, I've sought the optimism, the positivity of the situation. I mean, we're, my family and I were close. We can, we get to hang out with each other. You know, I'm working from home. Uh, that's all great. Uh, you know, definitely try to, um, figure out, okay, what are those things that can affect? How can, how can we actually move forward during this time frame? And, mm. um, and just keeping aware of that and just being very grateful. Um, 
uh, trying to trying to focus on gratitude more than anything else, I think, is is one of the best ways. Yeah, it's great advice. Control the controllables is something that somebody said to me the other day. That's and that's that's probably what I'd say. If there's if there's anybody who's in challenge and uncertainty and pain, uh, strife, I mean, that, that is it. Control what you can control because if you don't, if you worry about other things that you can't control, it just it it engulfs you in a way. So so if there was one piece of advice I would give, it would be that control yeah. what you can control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, with the book as well, it's all about self-development as well, isn't it? You know, so you're, you're highlighting areas that you're strong on. It could highlight areas that you're, you're weak on and can work on and stuff. And I just wondered, when you were writing the book, did you kind of ask yourself lots of questions? And I, I, the reason I, I, I'm leaning into this is because I, I wanted to sort of really deep dive into something which is um, I've been asking myself over the last few months. And that that's really sort of uh, what questions should we be asking ourselves to help us find our purpose or improve the quality of our life? Yeah. Well, so it's a great question and it's, it kind of rolls to this power of questions. I mean, we are designed to answer questions. So whatever question we pose to ourselves, good or bad, our brain will begin to come up with answers. And so we can use this neurology to our advantage by asking the right questions. Um, so the, so the, the, the question of what question becomes highly subjective to one's experience. In other words, they can ask any question they want. I always say if there's, if there's, if you don't know what to ask, if you just, you're lost. Okay. The best thing to do is ask in the moment, what's the better question right now? Okay. Cause if you ask that question, your brain will start coming up with great questions, you know, and then, and then you take those questions and you start to answer. But, but I would, I would encourage uh, people to test this on anything, you know, just take out a piece of paper, put a question in their brain and just start writing down answers because that's what's going to happen. Problem is we do this negatively all the time without thinking about it. Why am I so bad at this? Why does this always happen to me? Our brain answers those and it comes, it fills us with disempowerment. Um, but we can take charge of that and ask the better question. And if we don't know the question to ask, ask what the better question is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those two, you know, you are what you think, aren't you? At the end of the day. I, I, I truly believe that. I, I think it's my, been my experience and I, it's my belief that we are, the, the, the quality of our lives is directly proportional to the quality of questions that we consistently ask ourselves. I think mm. that's true. That's been my, my truth, certainly. Uh, and so I try to really live that. That's a great answer. I mean, what would you say is your most limiting belief that you've ever had? Um, well, I, you know, I, I think like most people, I, I still sometimes, and people might not believe this because I was a Navy SEAL, but I still struggle with, you know, can I do this or am I good enough? Or, you know, I, you know, even writing a book, like I don't, you know, am I a fraud? You know, I don't want to be a fraud. I want to make sure that the, 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 um, the information I'm putting out means something and has value and is, is, is backed up at least to the extent that I can back it up. So I think, but I think those, those types of questions can be, again, framed in a positive way. Um, because it, it encourages humility. You know, if I keep on asking myself, hey, I want to make sure that I'm not a fraud, then it forces me to really do some good research and ask and 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 dive into things that I might not have dive in and not be lazy and not be complacent. And so I think I think um I think, you know, there's always that uh the you know the the limiting beliefs, you know, are probably like every other human being, because you know, sometimes we're we're all rock stars in certain contexts and we're all doofuses in other contexts, right? I mean, we just, you know, we're we're, you know, it de- it depends. I mean, so so the, the the trick is find the context that you can be a rock star in and and do that, you know, and then the ones that you aren't, you're you're kind of, you know, 
really miserable at, then, you know, try your best, but, you know, maybe lean on someone else to help you with it. Yeah, absolutely. Does self-reflection play a part in your life at the moment as well? Or has it always? It always has. Yeah, I do a lot of self-reflection. I do a lot of introspection. I really enjoy that process. I'm constantly asking myself questions um, because I just, uh, for me, that's where discovery comes from. So I do it. I do it a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you frame that kind of over the last three years? And what would you, you know, describe the last three years as being? Well, discovery. Yeah, discovery. I love discovery. So the last three years has been a discovery process and continues to be a discovery process for me. So I've had to, I've had to continually ask myself questions and continually try to make sure I'm, I'm focused, um, and, and understand where I want to go. Um, Mm. so, so I just love discovery. So I'm, I think if I were to pick one thing, it'd be, I'm kind of bent towards that, you know? Yeah. So from, you know, moving forward over the next sort of few years, what, what are the sort of next chapters of your life? going to look like discovery um now part of that is going to be you know this book you know uh and you know getting this book out talking about it getting out to as many people as possible so it can help them probably writing another book at some you know because i have ideas on that um you know looking at forming up businesses uh you know because i I don't know that genre so maybe i'll Mm -hmm. you know do you know form the you know do the business piece of it um and then inside of all that just being a great husband and father because that's that's of utmost importance so so that's a lot on the plate so i'm going to focus on that <laughs> and then and then go from there. <laughs> yeah absolutely i i love that yeah um simon sinek though has, has played a part in the past few years i wondered how you how did you get to to meet him and get associated with him Simon, I met um, when I was still in the SEAL teams, and I had I had heard of Start with Why. I seen his TED talk, yeah. and then he had just finished writing Leaders Eat Last, and so I got in touch with him and asked him if he wanted to come talk to the to the team, and he did. He came out and talked to us, and he and I became fast friends, and and that was good eight or nine years ago, and um, and so he and I, yeah, he's just a wonderful guy. He's very generous. Um, he's he's kind. Um, and he's just fun. It's fun for he and I to talk. We just talk about a bunch of stuff and we throw around ideas. And, and so it's always a, it's, it's always a pleasure, but, um, uh, but yeah, he's been a great friend and, and, and continues to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's, he's very relatable and, and that that I can, you know, hand on heart say that having met you now, it's that you're a very relatable person as well, which is, which is great. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No. As are you. Uh, Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, Rich, I think that's a perfect place to end the uh, the podcast. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, really and truly. Uh, I'm so, so grateful uh, for you taking time out to uh, to speak with me. And uh, I've really, really thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So thank you. I have too, Steve. Thank you very much. Let's keep in touch. And, uh, and I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the opportunity and appreciate your support. So thank you so much. And let's keep in touch. Yeah, thanks, Rich. Take care. Oh, what an amazing conversation that was. Talk about learning from the best. And you can buy Rich's book from all online and high street bookshops. And don't forget to take the attributes test on his website and let me know how you get on. I'll put the results of my test in the show notes. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, even Amazon and Google now. Sharing the show with friends, family and colleagues is always greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm so grateful for your support. Uh, I don't take it for granted. And take care, everybody. Stay strong. Choose optimism every day. And remember, be the best that you can be every day. We'll speak soon.